Reddit insiders, Brandon and Rich ponder when enough is enough in terms of IoT device security. Because implementing robust security is so time-consuming and expensive, why haven't we just created development workflows that make it more costly to not use security? Later, the insiders are joined by Jeremy Boone, the technical director of the NCC Group, a security analysis firm. Together, the trio consider how flaws at all levels of the IoT solution stack can be exploited, as well as engineering best practices that can minimize these vulnerabilities. This boils down to CYA with CIA. Finally, John Labrosse is back with more Things That Annoy a Veteran Software Engineer, where he explains why it drives him nuts when a programmer overuses asserts. Good afternoon, Rich Nass, Executive Vice President with Open Systems Media here for this week's Embedded Insiders with Brandon Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded Computing Design. Hello, Brandon. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Rich? I am doing okay. We we are in the midst of yet another... Uh, I don't get how this works. There's no clouds in the sky, yet it's raining and there's lightning. How, how does that happen? Um, I'm not sure. That doesn't sound physically impossible. By physically, I mean like the laws of physics. Yeah, it's very weird. Very, very weird. I mean, in in reality, I just can't see the clouds because they're uh, behind the house, and oh. I'm looking out to the front of the house. But it's it's just the weirdest thing to have thunder and lightning and rain when the sun is shining. It's the weirdest thing to not be able to see the clouds behind the house when you're not looking that way. Are you making fun of me? <laughs> Well, while you're out there in stormy Florida, guess what the temperature is today in Phoenix? How many digits? Oh, it's three. Oh, at least it's only three. <laughs> <laughs> it's 116 degrees Fahrenheit today. Yikes. What's the feels like? Is it the same? The feels like... Oh, oh, we don't, I don't know. I don't, we don't really have. You don't do that? Because yeah, we, we do that here in Florida because it's usually somewhere like in the five to 10 degrees above the actual temperature. Yeah, see, we don't have, it's, we have hardly any humidity here. So there is no like feels like it, it just, it just is. Um, and people say, oh, it's a dry heat, uh, which it is. But if you're at 105, 110, 115, it's just hot. It doesn't really wasn't there some rule that if, if it hit 115, they can't have planes land? Yeah, I think it's 118. You can't, they can't take off from Sky Harbor, um, which has happened a few times. So. <laughs> Fun stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, so a while back, we were talking about some vulnerabilities that were found in the Zephyr operating system and the MCU boot secure bootloader. And that got me thinking, if you're developing an IoT system, or actually, you know, to scratch IoT, if you're developing a system in general, what do you really need to CYA in terms of security? Because if you are developing a smart home system, the likelihood that somebody is going to use differential power analysis against your device is so small. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually zero. Let's just be... Let's be honest, it's, it's zero. Nobody is gonna spend the time and the money and the resources to go use these advanced hardware probing techniques to break into your smart toaster. 
right? So like, you mean like who would want to break into a nanny cam or who would want to break into an aquarium and a casino or who would want to break into a Jeep? Yeah, that never happens. What I mean is if you're developing that system, do you really need all these extensive, extensive measures? You can spend as much on security as you want, right? You can, you can spend 10 bucks or $10 million securing uh, a system. It just depends on what the use case is. To your point there, there may be a potential that your smart aquarium thermometer ends up in a casino, but do you really need to do all of these advanced techniques to defend a, what could end up being like a $10, $20, $30 system? Well, that goes back to the concept of why would anybody want to hack my toaster? Because it isn't the access to the toaster. It's what else does it give you access to? Are we all willing to buy $155 toasters? Um, what it really comes down to is, you know, it's funny, this idea that um, it's impossible to make a system that's hack proof. And most security people will tell you that it's it just, it, it, it is, it is impossible to be 100% secure. The idea is to make it secure enough that the bad guys will go elsewhere. Um, and that's pretty much what we're looking at is how much do you want to spend? How much would it cost you if you got hacked? And, and that's what you weigh and how much you spend on your security. I mean, you can measure cost in lots of different ways. Um, and unfortunately, the bean counters count it very differently than people do. Not that bean counters aren't people, but, um, you, you know, they calculate how much a human life is worth. And they also calculate how much it, it would hit their brand. And that's how they come up with a number for what they spend on security. Well, do you think that that has to do with the number of people that we hear about who are using trust zone or not using trust zone? Do you think that they're taking that into account or do you think it's just a, oh, this takes too long or it's too hard or it's going to cost us too much money? Forget about it. I think those things are one and the same. I, I think trust zone is just one of those things that should be used that's used often, but it's certainly not used 100%. Um, I just saw a stat somewhere that said in the consumer space, about 4% of all devices are secured to the extent that they should be. Obviously not every, but not all of the 96% of those companies uh, developing consumer products analyzed the cost and said, you know what, it's just not worth using implementing trust zone accurately or the other security mechanisms that are available to us maybe that just needs to be part of the product development life cycle. And hopefully at some places it is, you know what, we've decided that for this pick your smart, anything, it's not worth doing security on it. All right. You just set me down a path that I wasn't really intending to go, but we've been talking about this a lot lately. The problem is that security is not part of the developer's DNA. If it's something you have to think about that we're even having this discussion about what does it cost? Should we do it? How do you do it? It needs to be part of the design process. In most instances, people don't really think about power anymore. It's just part of 
you want to make sure you reduce power as much as possible. You need to make sure you install security at every step of the process. And it shouldn't be something that you think about later or is a, a different team who, who comes in to do an analysis. It has to be part of the developer's DNA. That will probably never happen because the thing about power is if you have an electronic system, it's not, it's not going to run without power. An electronic system will run without security on it. And at the end of the day, the bottom line suggests that if you are going to spend X amount of development time or X amount of dollars on tools or some additional chip or some component to make your system secure, you're actually just taking away from that bottom line figure. The system will still run. An IoT device will still connect to your home network and perform the way it's supposed to if you don't have a TPM or if Trust Zone's not enabled. Is it the best idea? No. But we have a bunch of at our house, these IP cameras, and they're from some company, Wands View, and that's from China. And I don't know if they care if those devices get hacked and any and everybody says, "Oh, Wands View's bad." Hell, if if my Wands View cameras got hacked, I probably wouldn't even know, and I probably wouldn't take it out on Wands View. I'd just go buy the cheapest IP camera again on on Amazon. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is not accurate at least moving forward. We, we are almost at the point where um, the tools that I've seen lately, um, one from Secular Labs and one from IAR Systems, it's almost to the point where you have to shut the security off if you don't want to use it. It's become that easy to develop your code with the security built in. That's a different question. And I do think that that leads to a tipping point. However, what that means is that a lot of the processor guys and a lot of those tool chain guys are going to have to make it basically an extra step to develop a, an unsecure system, right? Like you have to go above and beyond not to do things this way. But that's an altruistic endeavor, don't you think? I feel like we just wandered into a, a Dilbert cartoon. But but boss, I want to make it unsecure, so I need to do this extra step. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think you're right. It, and once that happens, or if that happens, I should probably say, you're hurting our time to market and our bottom line by making a not secure system, which we can quantify immediately right now. Yeah, that will, that will definitely make things secure. I love living in, in a perfect world. Now, the insiders are joined by Jeremy Boone, the technical director of the NCC Group. A few weeks back, maybe a month or so ago now, NCC Group did an evaluation of the Zephyr, RTOS, and the MCU boot bootloader, and you found some vulnerabilities. Just quickly touching on that, Jeremy, how did you come about evaluating those two pieces of technology? Was it commissioned by somebody, or is this just an act of charity for the development community? It wasn't commissioned or paid for by any of our clients, but the project was kind of born out of client interest in the Zephyr platform. NCC acts as a strategic security advisor to a lot of companies that develop IoT products, and many of them have been asking for our opinion on Zephyr's security posture overall. We realized we didn't have a lot of knowledge about Zephyr, so we decided to undertake this independent research 
into Zephyr to try and answer those questions for our client. And that's kind of how our paper was ultimately created, how we discovered and disclosed those vulnerabilities to the Zephyr project. Interested parties can find out more information about the vulnerabilities that NCC Group uncovered in Zephyr and MCU Boot on embeddedcomputing.com or on the NCC Group website. But I want to take a step back right now, Jeremy, and look at the IoT device security posture in general. Where do you tend to find the most vulnerabilities? What layer of the technology stack? Is it down at the hardware level, up at the network level, somewhere in between? Oh, geez. Well, the short answer is all of them, to be honest. Um, (laughs) At the hardware level, the bugs we see frequently tend to be related to debug functionality. That is not uh, properly disabled before the products ship uh, and are kind of put into release mode uh, during manufacturing. And so this is things like uh, exposed JTAG or a console exposed over a UART uh, shell. At the firmware level, we see quite a lot of IoT devices that don't implement secure boot capabilities. So this exposes them to the types of attacks where an adversary could replace the firmware that they're executing. And you know, at the network level, there's classes of vulnerabilities, like the types you might've seen in the Zephyr paper where you know, a remote adversary could send one single malformed packet and corrupt memory in the networking stack, which can ultimately lead to arbitrary code execution. When we're auditing these IoT devices, we see bugs at, at all layers, to be honest. Were people surprised by these vulnerabilities, or was it more like, oh, yeah, we knew we were there. We knew it was there. Well, Zephyr Project, they knew that they had not undergone a formal security audit prior to us. So I believe that they probably had suspicion that there might be bugs lurking. More generally, the security community was not surprised at all because we're also jaded by now that, you know, IoT devices have bugs uh, and and that's just a matter of life. Are you jaded, Brandon? (laughs) A little. Actually, I want to take a step back and uh, ask if the entire development community is jaded based on something Jeremy (laughs) earlier. You mentioned, Jeremy, that uh, at the firmware level, a lot of devices don't implement Uh, capabilities like secure boot. And we know that just just by looking at only ARM uh, specifically, now a lot of their M-class devices, you know, have provisions built in like Trust Zone that enable that. And we've heard over the years, oh, it's too hard or it takes too long or I don't understand it. Actually, another big one is cost. What do you think the actual reason is that those secure boot implementations aren't being applied? Yeah, uh, well, I'm glad you mentioned cost because that's where I was going to go right away. A lot of these really inexpensive IoT devices, their manufacturers have to make that security trade-off. Do they buy a microcontroller that costs a few pennies less, which saves them many thousands or millions of dollars at volume? And this cheaper microcontroller may not have secure boot capabilities. That's the type of problem that we see quite a lot in this space But you also mentioned kind of a lack of awareness of of how to implement something like secure boot. NCC Group does encounter that from time to time as well, where an IoT device has 
shipped with a processor or microcontroller that, that supports secure boot, but it's just not implemented. And that can either be because the developer or the company didn't have time, or they didn't have the necessary resources or skills to kind of make that happen. Those, I think, are the biggest reasons why. Well, let's go ahead and scare everybody then, or try to. In terms of the severity of the vulnerabilities that you typically encounter, um, you know, we mentioned at the hardware level, we just talked about, you know, sort of at that firmware, you know, secure boot process and that little BIOS middle ground there. And then even up at the networking level, where do the most severe types of vulnerabilities tend to arise? Well, the most secure bugs will always be those that are remotely exploitable. These are the types of bugs that allow an IoT device to be compromised and say brought into a botnet or something like that. It's always the scariest or most severe when an adversary who is nowhere near you and is somewhere on the internet can compromise your IoT device. And when NCC Group is auditing IoT devices, we always prioritize the remote attack surface, so the network stacks like IPv4 and 6 or Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or MQTT, these types of things, to make sure that we give priority to the types of bugs that could be remotely exploitable. I know this is difficult, but are there any security best practices, basic general hygiene that should be implemented by engineering teams that's low-hanging fruit that you don't see being used, it's pretty easy. The primary thing that we advocate when we're working with our clients on security best practices is first and foremost to understand what your product's threat model and attack surface is. And, and a threat model really describes what are the critical assets that your IoT device possesses that have to be protected from an adversary, either for the purposes of confidentiality, you, know, you don't want this data to be exposed to an attacker, or integrity, you don't want an attacker to be able to tamper with the data. And when you've developed a threat model like this, you can start to begin to rationalize about what types of security features or properties that your IoT device must possess in order to uphold these requirements around the critical data that has to be protected. And that's always step one. This is often the role of like an architect or a product manager at an IoT company. And after that, we recommend something called a secure development lifecycle, which is really how to incorporate security procedures all through your design and implementation phases of your product. And always starts with threat modeling, and then it proceeds through to make sure that all throughout development, you're continuously considering the security impact of every change that's made or every feature that's added. This can cover everything from how your circuit board is designed, you know, decisions that go into the schematic, uh, right through to software development or firmware development as well. And it often includes automated security testing, like static code analysis as well, to supplement the manual efforts that engineers are doing, their peer code reviews as the firmware is being developed. Having some sort of automated tooling to help spot bugs is probably one of the biggest 
force multipliers that an IoT company could leverage. That's great. So in short, uh, start with CIA if you want to CYA, right? <laughs> yeah. One last question, because Rich and I have been going back and forth on this for a while now. In your experience, what tends to be more secure, an open source operating system or set of software versus a proprietary one? <laughs> um, I, I'll play the devil's advocate here and say neither. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, in our experience, we work with both closed and open source products. Um, we do security assessments for our clients where we're provided with source code or where we are auditing some open source part of a client's product. But we also do black box security assessments where a client provides us with an IoT device and they say, do what you need to do, but we're giving you no information other than handing you the product. And we need to reverse engineer how the product works, usually by disassembling it and extracting firmware and decompiling it and just figuring out how it works and looking for vulnerabilities that way. And although it's slower to reverse engineer a closed source product than it would be to have open source, we still find vulnerabilities. And so there's really nothing about closed source that makes it more secure, except maybe for the fact that companies that produce closed source software tend to not be working on a volunteer basis. And so they have usually budget to allocate towards security. A lot of open source projects being developed on a volunteer basis just simply don't have the time or the funding necessary to invest in multi-week or multi-month security audits. And, and I think that might be the one differentiator, but it, it doesn't really extend as far as saying one is more secure than the other, or one has bugs and the other one doesn't, if you know what I mean. Well, Jeremy, if this embedded thing doesn't work out for you, there's a career in politics out there waiting for you. <laughs> Now, John LeBras is back with more things that annoy a veteran software engineer. One of the things that drives me nuts is when a programmer overuses asserts, especially if you crash the CPU upon failure so that the developer can look at the cause during debugging. Uh, crashing the CPU for me means uh, executing a while one loop, an infinite loop, or halting the CPU. So it's okay to use asserts, if you could guarantee that the assert executes during the testing phase of your development cycle. But that only occurs if you do 100% code coverage. If you can't guarantee that you will execute the code or the assert during the testing phase of your development, then I'd rather you don't execute the code following the test condition and instead return a meaningful error code that your system can take corrective action such as stop an actuator or perform a sequenced shutdown as opposed to a crash. I've heard someone recommending to use an assert with an A to D converter. And what he recommended was, if the A to D is below a certain value, you perform an assert and thus crash the system or stop. Or if the A to D value is above a certain value, then you crash. Not really a good idea, especially if there's a possibility uh, whether the A to D converter fails or wire is cut or something, that you would get those conditions that would cause a crash. 
especially not for real-time systems. So asserts may be fine for PCs, but not always good for real-time system. So please think before you use asserts. Thanks for listening to this edition of Embedded Insiders. For daily industry news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website, embeddedcomputing.com.